Well, listeners, it is good to be with you on what is not so much a sunny Friday. Um, My wife told me that uh, she was awake almost all night and the wind was howling outside. Uh, I think we're in for a little bit of a cold front, which is just part of the last gasp of winter. It will be over soon, folks. Spring is literally around the corner. Can't wait for those spring rains and warm, sunny days and enjoying bras and eating outside well we've actually started eating outside as a family because uh, um, Pretoria actually isn't that cold but but uh, looking forward to those times next to the pool and on the grass and playing cricket outside with my boy um, I'm sure you are too I do want to thank a number of listeners who have already started to interact with the show this morning so sure who I think shared the show thank you so much for doing that um, Marlene Brits she says good morning Pastor Mark and Radio Pulpit it's Good to have you with us, Marlene, and uh, good morning to you too. Glenn, who says, um, I I think you meant good morning, Mark. Uh, Have a great show. Thank you so much, Glenn. Really appreciate that, and uh, I hope that you have a good morning. Uh, Andre April, who says, good morning. And Natasha, who says, morning, Mark. Bless, uh, God bless, and enjoy your weekend. You enjoy your weekend too. Um, Yeah, uh, what what a wonderful... Wonderful day. Fridays really um, kind of remind us that one one more eight-hour shift and then the party starts. <laughs> Weekend begins. A uh, little bit of rugby or sport of your choice. Uh, church on Sunday. <laughs> I love I love weekends. Um, I see uh, we have a morning uh, fam always listening. God bless from Nikki. Great to have you with us. Teresa says scripture and questions. Um, and he has three questions. Teresa, may there are three books that are available for those who ask one question or more in your case um, the three books that are available this morning are More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell uh, that's a booklet um, well a booklet it's 121 pages it's a good book Josh McDowell has written some good apologetics literature uh, which uh, which is kind of like a, a great way of getting started John MacArthur has written a monster of a book called Strange Fire um, Strange Fire is like 320 pages it is hardcover um teresa i think you might have a copy of this already uh, the danger of offending the holy spirit with counterfeit worship um that might be a good book for you to read if you are interested in the subject of the holy spirit and worship um it might give you uh, good stuff to think about and then conrad and Bewe has written an excellent book i've got two copies of this as well god's design for the church a guide for african pastors and ministry leaders uh teresa i think you've got a copy of this as well because i think I saw you posting um, on Facebook uh, regarding it a little while ago. Um, Conrad Mbewe is a pastor, a Baptist pastor up in Zambia. Um, he has an exploding ministry up there. He really is a gifted preacher, uh, possibly. Uh, I mean, it's a subjective mark, but uh, in my opinion anyway, possibly one of the best preachers on the African continent. He really does preach with power and with clarity um, and uh, and and. God has certainly blessed his preaching ministry. Um, Conrad's book really covers ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, and he covers church discipline, he covers church offices, he covers worship, he covers prayer, uh, he covers the mission of the church. It's an excellent book. In fact, very easy book to read, considering the fact that it is, 
I'll tell you now. Well, I, I thought I'd tell you now. 250, 260 pages. I read it in just a few days over December. I was sitting on a beach in Jeffreys Bay and uh, and <laughs> read while the kids swam. And uh, yeah, really, really a good book. Sharon says, Morning, Pastor. Have a wonderful day. God bless. Would love to get one of these books. Um, Sharon, you can get one of the books. Ask a question on, and I see you uh, commented on Facebook. Um, ask a question on Facebook on that particular thread. I'll see it in studio. We will answer it uh, live during the Q&A, which is what we have just started. Um, and then you can just private message uh, your details um, to the Facebook page in terms of your address, postal address, and we will get a copy of one of the books to you. Let's start off with a couple of questions. Teresa asks three questions as usual. I assume he just wants me to answer one. <laughs> so um, he's asking questions from the book of Colossians, which is great because I've recently been studying the book of Colossians in my personal devotions. And we have been going through it in a Bible study in Constantia Park on Wednesday evenings. We've been working through it line by line, verse upon verse precept upon precept and uh, have really been enjoying uh, the book of Colossians. I'm just opening up my study notes here and uh, and as I get to them they are now open. Let me ask, uh, let me read Teresa's questions. Greetings. Scripture and questions. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him. How does one explain this passage correctly? And please confirm that it does not go with the verse that seems to give off the idea that Christ went to hell. Well, let's start off by opening up um, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. I have it open in front of me. Um, and really, the section starts off, uh, the whole of chapter 2 goes together, Teresa. Um, so chapter 2 um, is a series, it seems, that, that Paul is countering in a series of statements, some false teaching which has been hard-baked into the church in Colossae. Um, and uh, the, the, it's very difficult to put one's finger on exactly what the false teaching was it seems to be related to dreams and visions and the worship of angels it also seems to have an aesthetic kind of um, mystical feeling about it as people were taking on uh, law um, it involved philosophies and the traditions of man but in chapter 2 verse 11 to 15 we read the following in him and the him here is the person of Jesus Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism now in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead and verse 13 you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands and this he set aside nailing it to the cross verse 14 Verse 15, he disarmed the, the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, from verse 11, 
um, Paul's point is that we have been set apart in Christ. That seems to be what this whole conversation around circumcision is. Circumcision obviously being a physical act of um, setting apart a piece of skin from the rest of the body. Well, we're told in verse 11 that we have experienced the circumcision of Christ. Now, this is not a physical act. This is a spiritual act. Um, and it is a a spiritual setting aside, setting apart of us with Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. This is not a water baptism yeah. This is a spiritual immersion. That's what that word baptizo means. It means to be immersed. We are immersed with Christ. But he doesn't end there. He continues the argument. He says, not only are you set apart in Christ, but you have been united. You have been unified with Christ. In verse 11 and 12, it says, in him you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Eternally, we have been unified. We have been buried and raised for life with Christ. This is an amazing reality. I'm, I'm reminded of a friend I used to have named Patrick um, who uh, was uh, at the previous church where I pastored and I used to meet with Patrick regularly uh, during the week, uh, once a week, I think on a Tuesday. He was a retired pastor. He'd often come and give me an evaluation of my sermon uh, and help me to grow and talk through various different pastoral matters with me. And Patrick's kind of main thrust, the, the, the doctrine that he loved to talk to me about the most was this idea of unity with Christ, that we have been united with Christ, that this new life by being born again is a unity. We are in Christ. We are with Christ. We are united with Christ uh, and we live um, with him. Um, and, and that's really what's going on in verse 11 and 12. Verse 13 to 15 then shifts the gears and changes the argument again. Not only have you been set apart in Christ, not only are you unified with Christ, but believer, you have been made alive with Christ. That's the, that, that's the application of that theology of being set apart in Christ and being unified with Christ. You've been made alive with Christ. It means you can live a victorious Christian life. Um, perfectly, our guilt has been cast away and we've been made alive in Christ. He says that we were dead. Um, yeah, we were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. But God made us alive together with him. God made us alive together with him. That's by a sovereign work, God has turned dead men into living men, has turned hearts of cold stone into hearts of living flesh. And then he goes on and explains how that happened. By the cancelling of the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this he set aside by nailing it to the cross. In other words, it is on the cross of Christ as Jesus died that we have experienced, because of the cross, that we have experienced a justification. When we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, we are justified. We are declared righteous. The righteousness of Christ is given to us and our imperfections which were laid on him on the cross are done away with um, that we have been made alive by God in this process of the death of Christ the, the, our sins were nailed 
to the cross. And that all becomes the context of verse 15. So that's kind of like a long answer to get to verse 15, Teresa. But I hope that it's helpful in that verse 15 then says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, your question was related to hell, and your question was um, asking me to confirm that this doesn't go together um, with the idea that Christ went to hell. Well, maybe two things. One is the near context seems to be the cross, that in some way, even as Jesus experienced shame on the cross, um, so too those whom were afflicting him, and yeah, we're talking about rulers and authorities, principalities, um, we might say, have been put to open shame. It might be talking about physical rulers and authorities. That would be um, the Jews that paid for his blood, the Romans that uh, declared uh, that he would go to the cross. Um, it might be talking, uh, I think, in this context, uh, in terms of the use of the word rulers and authorities and where else it gets used by Paul, um, talking of rulers and authorities, demons and principalities, and putting them to open shame. When it comes to this idea of triumphing over them, Paul does extend this argument of triumph um, to triumphing over um, not just triumph in the cross, but a moment of triumph subsequent to the cross. On the cross as Jesus died, it was finished. That's what he declared with his last breath. It is finished. The question is, well then, what happened to Christ after that process? We know um, from Christ's words on the cross, he spoke to um, to the man that was on the cross next to him that today you'll be with me in paradise so we certainly know that Jesus was in paradise after death in between resurrection but we also know according to Peter that he made proclamation um, to uh, the demonic host and I, I would say that there's a possibility that this idea of triumph is included into that. Teresa that was a great question I know you've got a couple more but right now we have John on the line and I do want to take that call we might come back to your other two questions Teresa um, but my suggestion is tell me which book you would like uh, I know how to get books to you bud you've phoned in a couple of times before the books that we have in studio today are Strange Fire God's Design for the Church and More Than a Carpenter John thanks so much for calling in it's good to hear your voice again yeah, thank you so much. How are you, how are you doing? Are you well? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm well enough, thank you. I think uh, you know, <laughs> it's the change of the seasons. We all get a little bit of a croak in our voice, and those of us who suffer from sinus suffer from it a little bit more this time yeah. of year. Yeah, but, but I'm fine. Thank you for asking. Good. Hey, I'm hoping um, you called with a question. Up. <laughs> I, I did indeed. I've got a question. Um, I'm, I'm sure you've answered it before, but I'd, I'd love to just get your your input once again. Um, sure. And 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 it's got to do with uh, women uh, leading in in the church setting. Um, yes. And it's obviously something that's that's come up on on discussion at at our church. And uh, you know we we haven't quite settled it as an eldership team. I'd love to just get your input. Um, if if I can just give a bit of context, so we we obviously there's the, the the differences between preaching, teaching, leading a meeting, meeting like MC. How does that fit in in the context of what um, you know in 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 one Timothy two and in Corinthians, you know where Paul's instructing uh, 
you know, he's basically saying the he how he wants women to remain silent in church. Um, how does how does that scripture fall into the context of today's church? Does that you know does that portion of scripture people say it, it only applied to that specific church? You know, in verse eight in in one Timothy two, he, Paul says, "I desire that women remain silent." Now, is is this just a, a commentary from Paul himself, or is this? Do you think that this is sort of uh, on behalf of you know God Himself that's that's speaking through Paul? Uh, and that's not it's not to put women down or oppress or anything. It's just you know at the end of the day we we need to hold the Word of God as the ultimate foundation of truth and. Uh, you know, not to let compromise in, in, you know, anyway. So how do we, how do we answer that question um, as to women leading in in the church? Yeah, thanks so much for that question, John. It's a question that comes up from time to time, uh, actually quite regularly, because it it really does sit on the cutting edge, the bleeding edge of the kinds of questions that our culture is asking, uh, and that we as Christians do need to consider and think through uh, very carefully. John, uh, I did say that there's three books. Um, uh, There's a copy of Strange Fire, a copy of God's Design for the Church, and a copy of More Than a Carpenter, uh, one by Josh McDowell, one by Conrad and Bewe, um, one by um, John MacArthur. Um, my suggestion is, um, I'm just going to pass you back to um, uh, to Mpo, uh, uh, um, who will just take your details down, uh, so that we can get one of those copies to you. Do do uh, do tell him which copy you'd like, and uh, and he'll tell me what we've still got left to uh, give out uh, this morning. Um, but let me answer that question as best as I can. Um, for a start, the the one Corinthians text um, may be a little bit harder to interpret than the one Timothy text, one Timothy two. The one Timothy text two is actually really, really easy. Um, it's it's difficult. Um, uh, I think somebody uh, somebody really has to do some um, interpretive uh, flick flacks in order to come to uh, a a more progressive interpretation than the one that I'm going to offer. But I do also want to offer a couple of nuances just in terms of um, of ladies and involvement um, in the worship service, which is what your question highlighted, uh, and then in leadership in general, which is where your question started. So let's just read 1 Corinthians chapter 2 together. I have it open in front of me. Um, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Uh, You'll notice that the context here is prayer, and Paul then goes on to a little bit more detail regarding prayer. For kings and for all who are in high authority and positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly uh, godly and dignified in every way. Bottom line is, we need to pray for all people. You'll notice the word all there, and it's exclusive uh, uh, its inclusive nature um, and then specifically for kings and for those in positions of authority um, and the reason for this is that we might actually live in peace now the reason why we to live in peace verse 3 continues by saying this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth in other words um, our 
prayers for those in authority in our land might be that our land would be in peace and the gospel might go out in unhindered. So it's not even it's not even a, a self satisfying reason why we pray for peace. We we pray for peace because we want the gospel to go out, and that is in line with God's will, according to verse three. Verse five says, "For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, who is the testimony given at the proper time. For it was appointed, for I was appointed, sorry, a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And the reason why." I went through that entire paragraph, John, uh, is to make two points. The first point is that this paragraph is talking about prayer. And so Paul is talking in the context of worship in this chapter. The second point is Paul has now stated his apostolic authority. I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in the faith. And he's also just pointing that his apostleship is not just to the Jewish nations. It's to Gentiles too. It's to people like you and me, John. Um, And so uh, the point of the first paragraph is to just set the scene of worship in specific context of prayer. And then secondly, the apostolic authority of Paul. Paul then says in verse 8, So we've got a bit of context. I desire that in every place the men should pray. And now he's being very gender specific. Men should pray. And the word here for men is men as in male human should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, now this is a um, uh, if I remember correctly, the conjunction is is hoitos. Um, likewise, it's a conjunction. In other words, it's it's joining together an idea. Also, that woman and the word for woman here is gune. It could be translated either women or wives. It has been correctly translated in verse nine as women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire but with what is proper for women who profess godliness and good uh, with good works and let a woman this is a command it's not a suggestion in english we begin it with the word let in verse 11 a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness i do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man rather she is to remain quiet and then he gives a reason why he's made this designation the separation between men in verse 8 in terms of the public prayers and women in terms of verse 11 in terms of being quiet during the public prayers he he gives a reason for that in verse 13 for Adam was formed first and then Eve in other words he's appealing back to created order now this is a really important um, apologetic in terms of the building of Christian doctrine we see this over and over in the epistles and Jesus Christ himself does it as well when he's talking about marriage and that's the appealing back to created order the the appealing back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 you'll remember Genesis chapter 1 is all about creation in the beginning um, a God created the heavens and the earth and uh, as he goes through creation it's good it's good it's good and at the end of creation on day 6 it's very good and on the 7th day at the beginning of chapter 2 God rested and then chapter 2 of Genesis is then a narrowing in on the 6th day 
of creation, specifically the creation of man, Adam. And it's very interesting. It's before the fall. The fall happens in Genesis chapter 3. But before the fall, God looks at Adam and for the first time in the text, we read that something is not good. It is not good that man should be alone um, because a suitable helper needs to be found for him. And God creates Eve. Um, and that chapter ends with that glorious account of man leaving his father and mother and be joining to his wife and the two becoming one flesh. Now, as we read um, Paul's reason why men are to pray, lifting out lifting up holy hands and women are to remain silent he appeals to first creation to first order for adam was formed first and then eve and adam was not deceived but woman was deceived and became a transgressor yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control the, the point here isn't to relegate women but ultimately to say we have different roles. We have different roles in the church, in this context, in prayer. We have different roles in the family. A woman has a high calling in the household and particularly in terms of her ability to have a selvic influence on her children um, in a way that often men can't have as they are out um, working and providing for the needs of the home. Now this is very important because um, Paul doesn't stop in chapter 2. He continues into chapter 3. And chapter 3, by and large, becomes a conversation, at least for the first 13 verses, about what leadership in the church looks like. So in the context of worship in chapter 2, he now talks about church leadership. And in church leadership, he begins by saying, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. There's no doubt about it. The office of overseer, which is synonymous with the role of pastor and the role of elder you can check that out in the book of Titus chapter 1 verse 5 and following um, this role is a role in terms of church leadership for men we then get to the qualifications for deacons in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 8 and following and yeah we have that very same conjunction um, in the English uh, we read deacons likewise in the Greek it's got that conjunction I'm fairly certain the, the, the conjunction is hoitos I, d I don't actually have my Greek Bible open I might open that a bit later if any more technical questions come in um, but, but really deacons likewise deacons also in much the same way as the list in chapter 2 was a list men are to pray with holy with holy hands um, women gune also um, are to ultimately be submissive um, in that prayer yeah we've got a list first elders or overseers from verse 1 deacons likewise this list has begun must be dignified and then there's a description of deacons and then here's why I made such a big deal about that word likewise and the word wives or women for gune it says in verse 11 and their wives in my translation likewise must be dignified this is an extension of the list so you've got you've got elders and then you've got deacons and then you've got another character another category their wives likewise must be dignified and that word wives is that word gune it could rightly be translated as either wives or women and i think that the translation that i'm reading from right now has got this 
incorrect. Um, if you had to go and take a look at the New American Standard Bible, um, they either have translated it as women or have a very clear footnote that this could be translated as women. Um, if you had to go and look at the Christian Standard Bible, it definitely has translated this as women, as well as I think the Holman Christian Standard Bible. My point here is this. When it comes to, and this is to answer your question now um, uh, more uh, m- more closely, when it comes to leadership in the church, leadership is to be male, and the appeal that Paul would make is back to creation, and um, back to Adam being created first and then Eve. Deacons, who are not leaders in the church, but who serve as recognized servants of the church, I believe that 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 8 through to verse 13 makes a compelling case that these deacons could either be men or as a second category or as part of the same unit of deacons uh, could be women. Um, But very important, deacons are not to be uh, responsible for um, oversight, uh, for teaching or for shepherding in the church. They are the recognized servants of the church, which which is why that would be be consistent uh, with the rest of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in fact the rest of the New Testament as well as the Old Testament um, and 1 Timothy chapter 2 um, I want to just apply one more thing and that's uh, in terms of upfront ministries particularly on a Sunday I do think that the whole church should be involved in worship and we should be involved in worship as far as we possibly can that includes gender that includes age all those who believe um, ought on a Sunday to be involved in the worship of Almighty God we have very accomplished uh, women musicians at Central Baptist Church some of them um, lead the worship team on a Sunday but in order to make sure that we're still conforming to what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2 our call to worship would be read by one of the pastors of the church and our benediction at the end of our worship um, set would be uh, read by one of the men in the church as as far as possible when it comes to those kinds of teaching uh, or leadership roles uh, we do want to remember what Paul himself has said from verse 8 under apostolic authority. John, I imagine that there's a ton of nuances to your question that you might want to ask. Uh, you might want to just uh, uh, give me a shot and, uh, and and send those in via a WhatsApp um, or via an email and I can get back to you. I've written a fairly comprehensive article on why I believe women should serve as deacons within the context of local churches, uh, which I can make available to you as as well as well as with a number of caveats which ensure um, a, a continuation of what might be called a narrow con- con- uh, complementarianism or broad complementarianism but for those technical terms uh, you can refer to the document uh, Sharon says morning Pastor Mark have a wonderful day God bless would love to get one of those books ah, I guess I've read that one before Sharon but uh, Adeline uh, Adeline says good morning Pastor I would love one of those books question how do I know when I have angered the Holy Spirit and also how can I pray to be able to pray in tongues Adeline really great questions um, two separate questions I, you might not I, I'm going to give you <laughs> my answer and I will say that there is uh, quite a bit of um, th- th- these have been quite uh, contentious questions that we've been getting in this morning so far um, but but you did ask uh, uh, for my interpretation and so I'm giving it and uh, trying 
trusting that you will go to God's word and read God's word for yourself. Adeline, I'm going to start with praying in tongues. How can I pray to be able to pray in tongues? Adeline, within the context of Christianity, there is a ongoing debate as to what tongues mean. I'm going to give you um, how what I interpret tongues to be. And I'm going to do it from Scripture. I'm going to turn to Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 2 we read on of the day of Pentecost in verse 1 they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance now that would be the first example of tongues that we have in the New Testament on the day of Pentecost the question is, what did those tongues look like? What might you be praying for? Adeline, that's spoken about in verse 5. Now, they were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Adeline, it's very important to note that on the day of Pentecost, as the Holy Spirit gave the gift of tongues, it was languages known to men. That was what made it miraculous. If it was vowels and sounds that were put together in ways that nobody understood that was standing around, there wouldn't have been anything particularly wonderful about that, particularly awesome about that, particularly marvelous about that. But instead, as we read verse 6, we read that each one was hearing them speak in his own language. I would interpret the gift of tongues to be a known language to man, a language which the Holy Spirit gives by divine gifting, a language which he gives in order to demonstrate something which is miraculous, that cannot be counterfeited, that points to as a sign to him as being a glorious God. Let me be more explicit. If I am not a Swahili speaker and I go to a village somewhere north of our borders and I come and I want to speak to um, the folk that are there and I begin speaking in English and all of a sudden I'm speaking in fluent Swahili of the great and glorious acts of God, people would get excited about that. People would get terribly excited about that. And they would give particular care and attention to what I was saying. It would be a genuine miracle, a gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what the gift of tongues is. Certainly in Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at a couple of other passages shortly. Um, But where I'm going with this is that they were in verse 7, amazed and astonished, saying, are not these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Can you see in verse 8 how Luke is underlining over and over again what the gift of tongues is. Uh, he then goes and explains what languages they were. Path, now, sometimes, I mean, there are some crazy names here. Um, sometimes uh, when we read uh, funny names in scripture, we get, the, we get them wrong. Don't laugh at me if I get any of these wrong. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Pythagoria and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God 
And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked and said, They are filled with new wine. I hope that you see in this text um, that folk were praying in languages known to men. I, I hope that's plain and clear and easy to understand. I, I, I want to take you to another, another at least two passages, um, but but one that I certainly think makes the same point, and that's uh, in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 10, we have this story of Peter and Cornelius. Now, Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He's a God-fearing man. He's a Gentile. And at this stage, uh, whilst the gospel is going out, it's gone to an Ethiopian eunuch. It's gone to folk in Samaria um, by the hands of um, Philip the evangelist. At this stage, God starts to do a work in the apostle Peter's heart. And he introduces him to this God-fearing Gentile. Um, Peter first gets a vision, and it's a vision of something that looks like a white sheet and there's food on it and God says take and eat and Peter says no Lord it's unclean and this happens over and over again and and Peter's actually confused um, it says in verse 17 of Acts chapter 10 now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean behold um, two servants of this Roman centurion appear at his house of Cornelius and they summon Peter to come with them to where Cornelius is. I think he's in the town of Joppa. I, 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 yeah, Joppa. So they arose, they go to Joppa. Peter comes into the house and the, the whole household and others are gathered waiting for Peter. Um, Peter lifted Cornelius up who falls at his feet and worships him saying, stand up, I too am a man. I mean, the bottom line is we don't serve men. We, we serve and worship Jesus Christ. And he talked with him in verse 27 and went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another the nation but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean so when I was sent for I came without objection and I asked then why you have sent me and Cornelius explains the vision um, to him and Peter opens his mouth in verse 34 and says truly I understand that God shows no partiality but in every nation that is English and Afrikaans and Zulu and Pedi and Tonga and Japanese and folk from Ukraine and Russia and folk from the Americas folk from every nation who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him as for the word that he has sent and then he preaches the gospel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ he is Lord of all you also know what happened throughout all Judea beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him and we are witnesses that he did both in the country of the Jews and Jerusalem and they put him to death by hanging him on a tree but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all people but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name friends there's the gospel and I just want to be clear on the gospel right now 
the gospel is a message and it's not a complex message jesus died he died as a substitute he died for your sins Jesus rose from the grave. He rose in victory over death. He rose that we might know that God has accepted the payment that Jesus laid down to purchase a people, to purchase us. Friends, the call on us is to believe upon the name of Jesus Christ, to repent, to turn from our sins and to cast ourselves upon Jesus Christ and we will live. That's life. That's eternal life. That's better than Friday being joyful that the weekend is here. That's the kind of praise that wells up and joy that builds up and spills out of your life every single day of the week. I hope if you don't know Jesus, you hear the gospel message today that Jesus died for your sin, that guilt that you feel that weighs on your shoulders like an unbearable weight. Jesus died that you might be released. He died that the wrath of God for your sin might be satisfied and he rose from the grave. You can trust him. He is a living savior seated at the right hand of the Father on high coming again to judge the living and the dead. And what will separate the living and the dead on that great and glorious day? Those who believe in Jesus, he will come and collect to himself for all eternity. Believe upon his name do it at once do it urgently verse 44 that was just a sidetrack verse 44 of chapter 10 of the book of acts while peter was still saying these things the holy spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with peter were amazed because the gift of the holy spirit was poured out even on the gentiles for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling god And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he command just as we have. In other words, as at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, so too in Acts chapter 10. um, The gift of tongues is given to these people. And so they baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And uh, and then Peter remained for them for some days. Um, Peter gets into all kinds of trouble uh, with the church in Jerusalem. You know, like the religious church um, always um, gives a hassle uh, to when things are happening and when revival has come. And so they kind of haul him before them and they ask him, to give an account of what happened down there in Joppa with all those Gentiles. And that happens in Acts chapter 11. Um, I'm not going to relay the whole story because he kind of just gives the whole story. You know, he gives the whole account. But what I do want to draw your attention in Acts chapter 11 to is this. Um, He told us uh, how he had seen an angel in verse uh, 13, uh, that's Cornelius, and he'll declare a message by which you'll be saved in your whole household. That's the words of Cornelius. And then in verse 15, um, Peter says this, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning and I remembered the word of the Lord and how he said John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ who was I that I could stand in God's way and when they heard these things they fell silent and then they glorified God saying then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life it's very interesting in the book of Acts and Adeline Adeline, uh, this is a bit of a longer answer than what I was anticipating giving but 
But let me give you a little bit more of the book of Acts. It's very interesting. Uh, the gift of tongues is only spoken about in the book of Acts three times. It's spoken about on the day of Pentecost as Jews come into the church. It's spoken in the book, uh, in Acts chapter 11, as these Gentiles come into the church. And the only other place that it's spoken about is, and I'm fairly certain it's Acts chapter 17, but I'm kind of guessing, so let me just turn there in my Bible. Um, uh, I'm going to go with Acts chapter 17 or thereabout when Paul that might be 16 um, I'm I'm looking I'm looking I'm looking as fast as I can I'm looking for uh, the baptism of John um, the baptism of John in the book of Acts and hopefully I find it easily now Acts chapter 18 I was one I was one chapter off um, Acts chapter 18 um, the the third time that it's spoken about is um, the the uh, when when Old Testament saints, uh, the last saints of the Old Testament, those who had listened to John the Baptist but knew nothing of Jesus Christ, when when they are confronted with the gospel, they are they also speak in tongues and are baptized at that stage because the bottom line is the only way that we can be saved is by the person of Jesus Christ, by his death and by his resurrection. Uh, another very important passage regarding tongues can be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the same idea is given that, that I've spoken about in terms of Acts chapters 2, chapters 10 and 11, and chapters 18. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul makes it uh, in terms of uh, a letter to the Corinthian church where there's all kinds of abuse that's happening within the context of worship, Paul makes it explicit that tongues is a language which is understood. In verse 6 he says, Now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes. How will anyone know what has been played? In other words, if you play the flute, you play distinct notes so that you understand the tune that's been played. So too with tongues, you, you need to understand what's being said. Else what's the point? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? In other words, if you're on, if you're on a battlefield and you're an army and you're fighting and a bugle goes off, but it doesn't make anything that anyone understands, well, you're not going to know what to do to retreat or to advance or, I don't know, in battle, go to the left or go to the right or stab the guy. <laughs> you know, whatever they do in battle. The bottom line is you won't know what to do unless you understand what the bugle is saying. So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not, this is verse 9, uh, like underline this, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 9, so with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And maybe just to say, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the context of the entire chapter is edification, the building of, up of the church. And Paul's point seems to be, listen, yeah, if you're going to speak in tongues, particularly in the church, if you're going to speak in tongues, speak in a language that people understand. Um, 
Now, maybe I should just nuance what I've said with one last thing before we go to an ad break and a song break and I get some water in order to replenish my throat. Adeline, that was a great question. Maybe just one nuance. I believe in a miracle working God. I believe in a God of miracles and I believe in the Holy Spirit. And I believe even presently if God desires to give person an understanding of a language which they never knew in order for them to declare the great and wondrous works of God in an evangelistic setting or in another setting I'm not going to quench the spirit and say that that can't happen that's God's prerogative but when it comes to the gift of tongues as I've read those verses and as I interpret those verses and as I give my understanding of those verses I would say the gift that the Holy Spirit gives will be a language which is understood by the people around Adeline thank you so much for that question I'm going to make sure that one of these books come to you Um, I will either contact you on Facebook uh, during the rest of the day or you can send a private message to the radio uh, pulpit um, uh, Facebook page and I will try and retrieve that folk we're going to go to a short um, song break and a ad break Uh, I will be back with you for a couple more questions and answers up until 11 o'clock but for now we are going to listen to Dr. Toomey Nothing Without You well, folk, it's good to be with you for the second hour of the show. I hope you enjoyed the first hour. I certainly did. I thought that the questions that we got in were intriguing, excellent. They were great. Folk, we've had so many questions. There is no ways that I'm going to be able to get to all of them today. The first six questions are going to get books. We've got three books that have already gone out. We've got questions coming in now from Smokey, from Living with a Pur- Living Life with a Purpose, and, uh, and another voice note that we're going to play and I am looking forward to getting one of these three books uh, that remain to you but maybe if you're listening in right now you do want to give a shout out and say hi on this Friday um, in uh, and connect with us as a show um, you can do that by either um, sending in a hi via WhatsApp. The WhatsApp number is 0826572729. You can, on Facebook, drop a hi mark. Uh, maybe tell me where you're listening in from. Uh, after the show today, I will podcast the show. And after that, I will go online and I will endeavor to answer any outstanding questions that have come in via WhatsApp um, or via Facebook. Or I will tide them over until next week if they are particularly good um, uh, depending on how many we got I, I think that we are a little bit oversubscribed today uh, we're going to now play a voice note from Smokey sure um, good morning Pastor Mark um, I just want to ask a question I don't know if it's relevant to anything or but I just have an urgency in my soul to know which Bible is the right Bible to read and to study because so much has been lost in translation it's been written over so many times by so many different people and you hear all these horror stories of different people that's translating the bible please 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 pastor mark just tell me which bible is the right bible to read i have this urgency in my soul to know please so much has been lost in translation please just let me know it's smoky really God bless. Have a beautiful day further. Bye bye. Ah, Smokey, thank you so much for um, asking the question, and I can hear the urgency in your heart. 
I want to do justice to your answer. However, I do need to be brief um, because I, I want to also get to a number of other questions. But let me just say that um, uh, reading the Bible is incredibly important and God's word is incredibly important. And so we do want to read from a translation which is faithful and a translation which is true, a translation which does the best job it possibly can do in translating the very words of God from Hebrew, from Aramaic, from Greek. Those are the original languages of both the Old and the New Testament into English so that we can understand it. Or Afrikaans, as you Afrikaans sprekendens is, that's the best Afrikaans I've, I've tried in a while. Um, or if you speak Zulu or Venda or whatever of the other languages um, out there listeners um, speak. And so you do want to do a lot of thinking and a lot of thought in terms of what translation you are reading from. Let me tell you quickly why there are many translations, Smokey. There are different translations because language changes over time. The meaning of English words change. I don't know if you've ever tried to read Shakespeare or even older than Shakespeare. Um, the original story of Robin Hood, I forget what it's called. Um, uh, it's written in ancient English. It, it almost reads like German. I've got a copy of it on my bookshelf. I try and read it from time to time. I get through about half a chapter <laughs> in a reading. Um, very difficult, but Part of the reason for that is that language changes after time. Um, another reason why we have different translations is because there are different translation methods that get applied to translating from one language into another. Um, so, for example, some Bible versions translate as literally as possible, word for word. Other Bible translations translate dynamically um, where possible, thought for thought. The third reason why there are different translations is that we have different source texts. We don't have a um, a, a perfectly preserved um, manuscript of the original writings of either the Old Testament of the New, or the New Testament. Now, I don't want to put you on shaky ground because it isn't shaky ground. We have every confidence um, that we have um, God's word revealed to man and that he has preserved that um, with incredible excellence here on earth and it is perfectly preserved in heaven but there are two primary source texts that translators use the one is called Textus Receptus and that was compiled by a man named Erasmus in about the 1500s the King James Version as well as the New King James Version use that and the second source text um, is compiled using what we call the eclectic method which considers external and internal evidences for determining the most likely original text um, and every other Bible translation that I'm aware of um, uses uh, what what we would call um, the, the, the second method, this eclectic method. Um, so there are a lot of different translations that are out there. Um, I mean, a couple, the New International Version, the King James Version, the English Standard Version, the New Living Translation, the Christian Standard Bible, the New King James Version, uh, the Message, the... How do you know? The New American Standard Bible. How do you know which one you should go for? Well, I think that we can evaluate the various different 
texts that are out there we can we can consider this this thought for thought and this word for word idea what we're really looking for um, is a translation which is as close to the original authorial intent as possible so that would be word for word I would certainly value a word for word translation as far as possible but I do want it to be understood in English and so by necessity as you translate from one language to another you don't want a wooden translation one that doesn't read very well in English and so um, sometimes there, there needs to be some kind of dynamic equivalence there's a blend between both word for word and thought for thought um, in terms of the source texts I prefer the eclectic or I prefer I believe that the eclectic method is is preferable in terms of translation sources over what I called the textus receptus and there are many reasons for that um, I will certainly post something uh, to Facebook um, after the show today. So let me just trans- uh, group the translations for you. In terms of Textus Receptus and Literal, you've got the King James Version and the New King James Version. In terms of the Eclectic Method and Literal, you've got the New American Standard Bible, the English Standard Version, the Christian Standard Bible. In terms of the Eclectic Method and Dynamic, you've got the New, Amer- the new International Version, the New Living Translation, the New International Reader's Version and the Message and other such translations. For me the top contenders are the New American Standard Bible, the English Standard Version and the Christian Standard Bible. For many years I used the Christian Standard Bible. I felt I felt that that had a continuity in terms of uh, the text. It had an accessibility. It was easy to understand um, and it was faithful and true um, to the authorial intent. Uh, I used the Christian Standard Bible for at least 10 years. Um, I now use the English Standard Version, which is very similar um, and falls into the same band that I was talking about. Um, I certainly do advocate for those who are serious students of the Bible to use a new American Standard Bible. All that said, though, let me say, Smokey, that the Bible translations that we have available to us today largely are excellent. Um, And I would encourage you to read one of those Bibles with a great deal of confidence knowing that you are accessing the very words of God as you do so. We're going to listen to another voice note, I think one from Mavis now. Great morning, Pastor Mark. This is Mavis. Thank you once again for educating and empowering us, me especially, with the word. I so appreciate Friday mornings. It's almost like being at theological college in a sense for a few hours. But uh, yeah, this is my question. Knowing or having read that John is the disciple whom Jesus loves, did Jesus at any stage say, John, you are the disciple whom I love? Or is the deduction made from Jesus and trusting his mother to John and John to his mother at the time of the crucifixion? Please assist. Because I want to know, is it okay for me to say, me, Mavis, I am the disciple whom Jesus loves because I know that Jesus loves me. So please help me here. Appreciate your good work. God bless you. Bye-bye. 
Well, maybe it's a couple of things. One is I love Fridays too, and uh, and and kind of sitting on air with the kinds of questions that come in is always greatly encouraging for me. Um, even when folk come in and disagree with something that I've said and engage, sometimes rather forthrightly um, with me, I, I really enjoy the pro. I love Fridays. I enjoy Friday morning. So um, I'm glad you do too, Mavis. Thanks for joining me. Um, secondly, I'm going to address the question in two ways. Uh, the first way is I'm going to just take a look at John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And then secondly, and rather briefly, I'm going to talk about um, Mavis, whom Jesus loved, uh, loves. So the Gospel of John is the only Gospel which mentions the disciple whom Jesus loved. Um, and we read that in a couple of places. So the first is John chapter 13, verse 23, excuse me, which uh, verse 23, which says of uh, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining next to me, obviously um, talking of the meal. Um, and there we have this designation of the disciple. The second time in John chapter 19, um, we have this declaration when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, he has your son. And that's the verse that you were appealing to in your question. And then the last time is in John chapter 21, verse 7. Um, then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter it is the Lord and the disciple never specifically identified uh, is never specifically identified in any of these texts but the identity of this disciple who Jesus loved is clear um, uh, the disciple whom Jesus self-identifies as the author of um, this book um, and most scholars believe it to be the Apostle John who you've correctly um, designated uh, in that text uh, in your in your question in terms of it uh, we 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 read this um, uh, Jesus giving uh, his mother or the care of his mother uh, to this disciple in John chapter 19 we have this uh, uh, this declaration of uh, the or the self acknowledgement the disciple whom Jesus loved uh, in chapter twenty one and again this acknowledgement this authorial acknowledgement or concession of him being the disciple whom Jesus loved in verse thirteen and so um, in one way you could say well yes Jesus never said that the author is saying that of himself. But in another way, as we think of how Scripture comes to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that it is God-breathed, it's the very words of God, and that no author um, kind of made stuff up as he went along, but rather they were carried along um, by the Holy Spirit, Peter says. Uh, and that idea of carried along is a it's a sailing term of of a sail being set and the wind being blown into the sail and the boat being carried along by the wind um that kind of is is how scripture comes to us in terms of inspiration uh from the holy spirit uh, and so the author is calling himself the disciple whom Jesus loved but he's calling himself that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and so we can we can absolutely um, I, I take it that that John um, in terms of deduction um, but this disciple whom Jesus loved was loved by the Lord in a special way in a peculiar way um, and he is singled out from the other disciples Mavis, I have wonderful news for you and for all who are listening in, who are in Christ, who have put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. Friends, we are greatly loved by God 
greatly loved by God and we are greatly loved by Jesus Christ. Jesus speaks about about us in his own words the whole way through scripture. Um, he came into this world to bleed and die for us. He prays for us. Uh, in John chapter 17, you can go and read his high priestly prayer as he, as he prays for, for those who will come after his disciples and he has us in mind. We read in God's word that God is love. We read in God's word that Jesus is God. And we read in God's word that Jesus loves his people, that Jesus loves his lamb. And so it's not incorrect to say, Jesus loves me. I think of that song that we used to sing when we were in Sunday school as kids. I, I don't know if it's still in fashion or if the song has become old and, and are now represent a bygone generation. But Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so yes Jesus loves me and this morning Mavis you can say yes Jesus loves you I've put a copy of a book aside I'm looking forward to getting that to you uh, later in the day uh, client services here at Radio Pulpit we'll make sure that it gets to you Mavis I might need to ask you for your um, address details uh, and for some other information we're going to listen to another voice note this time from an anonymous caller unless they give their name in the voice note itself I have a very concerning issue that I'd like to address through Pastor Mark, especially to the leadership of the churches in South Africa in general. Uh, the problem is, yes, it's a very controversial statement because the Word of God says that in Romans uh, 12 verses 2, that we must not be conformed to the standards of the world, but we need to be transformed, changed by renewing our minds. My problem here relates to the worldly uh, political holidays and days that we made of importance that the church has now adopted and adapted to to make uh, important in the ministry, uh, particularly Youth Day, that now become Youth Month, Women's Day, that has now become Women's Month, which are political days, which the church has latched onto and made into something that is not supposed to be. My thing in this whole something that is deep 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 close to my heart is the issue that uh, compounds the problem here in South Africa is the issue of fatherless homes where men are absent absent fathers from their homes now here in the month of June is in the middle of it all is Father's Day but it's shrouded by Youth Day, which now becomes Youth Month. So fathers are actually become secondary to that. Women's Day becomes Woman Month, and women are celebrated throughout the month of August. And it becomes a huge issue. But fathers who are supposed to be the head of the home, who are supposed to be the leaders, have become almost insignificant. And I, I, my challenge is to the churches is to conform to, his, to, to the biblical principle of not 
being conformed to the world, but we should be trans. We should be changing the world to godly thinking. Can you please elaborate on that for me, sir? <laughs> well, thank you so much for calling in. It was less of a question than a kind of a statement, um, which had a question kind of tagged on the end in terms of elaboration. I can confirm much of what you said. We are not to be conformed to the world, but we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Uh, we to test that we might discern what the will of God is, uh, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is how we to live our lives. It's to be our, our living sacrifice. Um, and so I, I confirm with what you've said. Uh, in terms of days and the celebration of days I, I mean we do have a lot that uh, is on the calendar nowadays as a nation and I do think that the government has, has a right to to highlight many issues of social concern and they do so I think fairly well in terms of highlighting uh, many issues in society and and having days which either celebrate that or days which bring awareness to that I don't really have a problem with government doing that I do think that the church does need to be careful not to allow the tail to wag the dog I don't know if that's the right metaphor but it kind of is in the back of my head in other words uh, government doesn't get to dictate the pace in terms of the church calendar and how we celebrate and what we do during the course of the year but I do think that um, uh, within the context of local churches uh, churches which choose to celebrate a youth day or a women's month or a father's day or a mother's day um, that there's freedom to do that and to highlight and to celebrate um, both the role that each one of those um, uh, uh, particular demographics play within the context of the local church and sometimes to highlight concerns uh, within culture and within society around that. Uh, we do need to be careful that we don't get too driven by social issues and take our eye off the main thing. We need to set our mind on things above, not on earthly things. And sometimes I do think that the danger is that we end up celebrating uh, all of these things that the world celebrates at the expense of making our worship to Almighty God. Um, but there's a, a measure of freedom in terms of um, choosing to engage and interact on these things. I, I guess if I had to appeal to a verse, it would be to Colossians chapter 2, since Teresa was there earlier this morning um, where it says therefore let no one pot judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath these are a shadow of things to come but the substance belongs to Christ maybe not the greatest verse um, but in the context uh, I think it's it's talking about legalism and law passed over from the Old Testament but certainly does speak to a measure of freedom that we have in Christ in the context of how we live out our Christian lives maybe a better verse to appeal to would be Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 which says it is for freedom that you've been set free I love that verse a uh, great verse uh, in terms of Father's Day specifically if I had to just elaborate on that that, that certainly started in a church uh, a church in the States during a Sunday sermon um, in 1908 um, a celebration of uh, fathers and a focus on fathers um, was uh, w w was used for the first time Mother's Day uh, I imagine has a similar auspicious start uh, probably also related um, to church um, where we recognize the roles of 
of of men in our community, men who have who 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 serve in families as as husbands, as fathers, and we celebrate that role and that function as a God given, um, God orchestrated, uh, God condoned, and God glorifying thing to do. Be a good father on Father's Day, and the other three hundred and sixty five days of the year, um, and so that would include Mother's Day and and such like. I get I guess the the key concern that I would raise, and uh, and that would appeal to your original uh, passage that you read, um, was we we need to be careful that we don't celebrate these various different things like the world celebrates them. We need to celebrate them in the context of what the Bible has to say about fathers and mothers and children and women, and we need to make sure that we're always putting a biblical worldview um, on the table for people to eat on Sundays as they come to church to worship Almighty God first and foremost. Um, and in the context of that, teaching them what the Bible says on various different things. Um, thanks so much for that. I have put a book aside for you. That's the end of the books, folks, but not the end of the show. We still have time for uh, one or two more questions. Uh, a couple of other questions came in, and I am now reading back as far as I can. Um, uh, Teresa does say uh, we'll go for the apologetics one thank I think it's by Josh yes I'd put that one aside I was pretty sure you had all the others Penny says good morning Mark happy that it's Friday again so that I can learn yet again Penny always great to have you with us long time listener um, Smokey and Mavis uh, we've listened to those uh, living a life of purpose we've listened to that one um, a number of other people just commenting and liking and sharing um, the radio pulpit live stream thank you so much for doing that and fairly soon i'll have the podcasts up to pastor mark penrith on facebook as um and you'll be able to share the podcasts directly from that um i do want to just read uh, i've got a i've got another question that has come in from mpo uh mpo i like your name it means life i'm right eh mpo means life no it means gift yeah, now I'm getting a nod. It means gift. I, I do like your name, Impor. Um A question that comes in from Impor. I'm just opening my Bible to Luke chapter 9. And in Luke chapter 9, and we are reading in verse 55 and 56, just a question of confusion. Is God not a consuming fire is the question. Let me read the the. The text in context, um, it says, uh, for a start, maybe just go back to verse um, uh, 46. There's an argument, right, about who's the greatest. And it pops up just after Jesus has said um, that he's going to go and die for the sins of many in Jerusalem. But in verse 46, an argument pops up about who's the greatest. And Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me for he who is least among you is the one who is great and then he goes on and gets a question john asked master we saw someone casting out demons in your name we actually dealt with this last week and we try to stop him because he does not follow with us but jesus said to him do not uh, stop him for the one who's not against you is for you and then in verse 51 we get this when the days drew near and so we've got a a time lapse we also have a, a an indication of, of time um, and an indication to the main part of the, of the gospel message which is the the death of jesus christ and the events that surround passion week in verse 51 it says when the days drew near for him to be taken up 
he set his face to go to Jerusalem and that's why we read uh, from verse uh, 43 where Jesus was foretelling his, his death and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. We get a couple of interesting uh, ideas here. Uh, in verse 52, we know the Samaritans, right? So uh, the Jews, um, Judah, uh, it would have been the southern kingdom. It's the kingdom that remained loyal to Yahweh the longest before it was taken out into exile to Babylon. And we have the story of Daniel and the lion's den and that. The Samaritans uh, were the northern kingdoms, the northern tribes, 10 tribes. And those northern kingdoms were were captured by Assyria who ended up intermarrying into the Jews that lived in that northern kingdom area and interpopulating the religions into Judaism and so it became a the, the Samaritans had had a mixed religion they were despised by the Jews and yet Jesus Christ I mean in the book of John we read in John chapter 3 the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well Jesus seemed to have had a ministry uh, and even attracted believers amongst Samaria. In fact, even today, we were talking about Acts chapter 9 earlier. You remember Philip the evangelist went down into Samaria and he preached the gospel and many came to faith. The, the revival was so great that the Jews in Jerusalem sent representatives up to check and see what was going on um, and uh, and to make sure everything was kosher. Um, that was a tongue-in-cheek joke. Um, and then later, um, Philip went and preached at uh, other villages uh, in and around Samaria um, in Acts chapter 9. Yeah, we read that Jesus is going through Samaria um, toward Jerusalem. Most of Jesus' ministry actually happened in in Galatia, um, in, in Galilee, sorry, uh, Galilee of the Gentiles, it would be called. In Galilee, um, Jesus, um, uh, much of his ministry, much of the, he, the, the people that were following him came from the very far north of Jerusalem. In between Galilee and Jerusalem is Samaria. What the Jews would frequently do is they would cross the Jordan River and go around Samaria to avoid going through the countryside itself but we read often that Jesus goes straight through Samaria in order to get to Jerusalem he doesn't seem to have any of the other qualms that the Jews of his day had and so we read in this text that uh, he sends people to the village ahead of him to make preparations for him coming uh, but the villagers refused to receive him because his face was set to Jerusalem they knew he was going to Jerusalem I suspect that at this time um, many thought that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to make himself king that he was going to go and set up a reign and a rule throw the Romans out and set up a earthly kingdom that's what the people certainly expected I imagine that was possibly on the mind of the Samaritans whatever was on their mind whatever their actual motivation was they didn't receive Jesus Christ because his face was set toward Jerusalem and when his disciples, Jane and James and John, saw it, they acted like kids. <laughs> they acted like teenagers, like spoiled brats. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> In other words, do, we, do you want us to wipe them out? Are you going to Jerusalem? You're going to be 
king. Um, you're going to come into your kingdom. We've seen you demonstrate miraculous works. God is clearly for you. We can remember Sodom and Gomorrah and those wicked cities that stood against uh, God uh, in the book of Genesis. Well, you know, as you're going down to Jerusalem, these guys don't want to let you come and stay in their village. Should we just wipe them out? Well, Jesus says in verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. The bottom line here is two things. Um, Jesus Christ didn't come to consume <laughs> that village in Samaria. He came to go to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the people in that village and to die for the sins of the people in Jerusalem and the people in Pretoria and the people in Bronkelspreit and the people in Hamanskral. Jesus went to Jerusalem to die for the sins of man so that he might bring to himself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation on earth. He didn't come um, at his first coming um, as that kind of judge to rain fuel and fire down on a village in Samaria. But your question is well is well asked. Uh, is God not a consuming fire with a question mark? And the answer is yes, God is. Um, and so why did God for a time... Um, give mercy to that town in Samaria? Why does God for a time give mercy to the people of Jerusalem? Why does God give mercy to the people in Pretoria and the people in Bronkosprate and even the people in Hammondskral? Why does God not rain fire down on so many who are rebellious and set in their hearts against them, uh, him? And Impo, the answer is this, that God is long-suffering, but the time is almost past. Wicked men are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath. You can read about that in Romans chapter 2. And that day of wrath is coming like a freight train. The reality is now God calls upon all men to repent, to turn away from their sins and to cast themselves upon him. Because the next time that Jesus comes, he doesn't come as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He comes as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He comes as King of kings and Lord of lords. And on his hilt, uh, on his hilt, on his thigh, he has a sword. <laughs> and he comes as a consuming fire. He comes with all the wrath and the judgment of God to press out the grapes of wrath on the wine, pr on the, on the wine press. You can read about that in uh, Revelation chapter 19. The bottom line is, soon the judge of the living and the dead will come and on that day it will be like a consuming fire in our midst the holiness of god on naked display the time now is for all men of samaria for all men of pretoria for all men everywhere to repent of their sins and cast themselves upon jesus christ and live i hope that answers your question paul thank you so much i'm seeing a lot of engagements and interactions um uh, folk uh, a lot more questions that have come in and i'm 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 so sorry that i only have six books i wish i had i wish i had 50 books um but i only have six and so uh unfortunately I, i'm not going to be able to um <laughs> give out for any more of the questions but let's see if we can get through some questions and i'll save up others for the start of next week's show 
Janice asks Pastor Mark Penrith uh, or Morning Pastor Mark uh, what happens after death from Janice in uh, Cartonville uh, well Janice after death after we die we are immediately translated into one of two places either paradise or Sheol um, both are waiting places um, a waiting place of the dead paradise in the Old Testament Abram's bosom is a place for the righteous Sheol uh, is a waiting place um, for those who are not in Christ for those who will be waiting eternal torment um, the next step in terms of those souls who have been translated into one of those two places is at a future time when Jesus Christ comes again he will come to judge the living and the dead and at that stage every single one of those souls will be translated into an eternal state and that eternal state will be one of two places heaven or hell there is no in between there is no purgatory in the middle and my interpretation of scripture is that there is no place of sleep uh, in the meantime uh, thanks so much for that question Janice uh, Andre says uh, Pastor Mark uh, regarding tongues and this is just a follow up to the conversation that we had in the first hour of the show at previous church the pastor came and said I must make move my lips and start to make sounds such as to make unknown uncomprehensible sounds they also use Romans 8 26 I still doubt if this is a real tongue so Andre I do recognize that uh, there is difference uh, in interpretation difference in understanding um, uh, when it comes to the gift of tongues and some do practice uh, tongues that are unknown to men uh, in terms of the texts that I've read to you uh, the four places in Acts I remember the fourth uh, Acts chapter 2 um, the, the Samaritans when they first came uh, to faith along with uh, the disciples of John and Cornelius the first Gentiles um, and then Acts chapter uh, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 14 I'm convinced that tongues are languages known to men and I'm convinced that God can do the miraculous and I'm doubtful um, when I hear uncomprehensible or unknown sounds. It doesn't sync with what I understand God's word to clearly say. Um, there are a number of other comments and a number of other questions. Thank you guys so much for giving them. I saw one. Oh, I've gone I've gone way past. Oh, um, uh, I'm now trying to go back. Um, guys, I, I will be replying to as many of these as I possibly can um, but uh, any that I don't I will either reply to um, on WhatsApp or on Facebook or I will write down um, for um, for next week uh, there's a good morning from Jean uh, there is a, a good morning from Tinker there is a share from Petula there is a ha from Helia uh, Pietra Small has made a couple of comments uh, Anna has said amen uh, there is a voice note from James Carson I don't know if we can listen to that uh, Mpo is just checking and we're going to listen to that one on air uh, good day Mark uh Look, concerning tongues, I would just like to ask, um, especially verse 1 Corinthians 14, 2, where the Paul speaks about those who speak in tongues, who do not speak to people but to God, because nobody is understanding what he's saying or praying, because through the Spirit he speaks um, mysteries. Uh, there's some other verses 
that also connect with this verse but just for some clarification i'd like to have your comment please thank you mark god bless keep well bye Ah, oh, James, what a, that, that's an excellent follow-up question and leads us right back to Scripture. I'm going to encourage anyone that listened in today to go to 1 Corinthians 14 and read through the chapter. It is an insightful chapter. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14 from verse 1 to 5 actually go together, um, James. That would be the start of, um, of, of how I would answer that. Um, and I would draw attention to the, both the words mystery as well as to the word tongues. So just to read the context it says pursue love and 1 Corinthians 13 is that that great love chapter right love is love is above everything like if you're gonna if you're gonna get a gift from God you know get love because love is the greater gift and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts especially that you may prophesy now you'll notice that prophecy has been lifted up now the question that we need to ask when we get to verse 2 to verse 5 is why has prophecy been lifted up well here comes the answer for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God for no one understands him but he utters mysteries in the spirit on the other hand the one who prophesies speaks to people for the upbuilding that's a key word the edification and encouragement and consolation the one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up but the one who prophesies builds up the church now I want you all to speak in tongues but even more to prophesy the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up what he's saying is let's say you're speaking in German you don't know German. It's a gift which God has given you. It's a it's a gift that, that he's given. And you're in church and you're speaking German. But it turns out that no one else in the church speaks German. Um, Paul is saying that person should rather keep quiet. Because what's the advantage of a person having a tongue that no one understands? And the comparison here is tongues to prophecy. Prophecy, on the other hand... If you speak in a language which is known to everyone in the gathering, everyone understands it. Everyone is edified. Everyone is built up. That's the whole idea of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is whatever we do must be for the edification of all. He gives one exception. Hey, listen here. If you're speaking in German, you've got a miraculous gift to speak in tongues. You're speaking in German. It's a miracle. It is amazing. It is a sign. It is a wonder. No one understands this would be completely pointless unless, and this is in verse 5, someone interprets. In other words, there's a German speaker that's in the audience and that German speaker can say, guys, you won't believe it, but he's speaking German. I understand what he's saying. Let me tell you all what that tongue is saying. Um, alternatively, God gives a gift of interpretation. That's a valid gift. It is in the gift, um, it is in the gift lists. Uh, we might speak about that next week. But in the meantime, let me just say, in terms of rules of interpretation and a useful way to understand verse 2 is to read it in the context of the paragraph. The paragraph is from verse 1 all the way to verse 5. And in verse 5, he says, don't speak in tongues, rather prophesy unless someone interprets. And I would say that that is a valid interpretation of that text, that um, tongues is a miraculous language that is a real language that is intended to be understood by everyone. Uh, if no one in the audience understands what you're saying, rather keep quiet unless there's someone there to interpret. Thanks so much, James. That was a great point of clarification and I really do appreciate it. I hope that my answer satisfied you in some way. Uh, we do need to say cheers. Um, but let me say, guys, 
I really enjoyed chatting to you today. I, I loved engaging with you. I loved the questions and the enthusiasm of the questions and the variety of questions that we had today. I do want to encourage you to tune in next week as we continue this conversation to the glory of God. Each week our prayers go out to all the elders and deacons who hold lines in local churches as well as to our missionaries from South Africa who serve in foreign fields. Um, our church actually this week is doing a missions conference where we are celebrating um, for missionaries that we have in foreign fields and just giving glory to God for them. Um, prayers for and much respect to first responders, to police and to defense force and to those who dispense justice in our country, to our firefighters, to our paramedics, to our nation's nurses and medical personnel as well as correctional service officers you guys really do hold the line at the state level and we thank you for each one of you who does your jobs with excellence and your duties with diligence you have been listening to table talk with me your host mark we're going to be going to news shortly and so until next week friday walk wisely live holy and testify zealously